We have been going through this series called Core Christianity, where we are looking at the fundamental beliefs that Christians believe. We are looking at really the core doctrines of Christianity and what it teaches. And we're doing this because if you are new to Christianity, it's helpful to, uh, if you're exploring, to say, what is it that Christians believe? What is it that they actually think? And what does the Bible teach about these various things? And so if you're exploring, we're, we're grateful that you are here and checking those things out, that in some ways you are truly being intellectually honest, not just saying, oh yeah, I've heard about that, but you're actually exploring and discovering. And if you're a Christian, we need as well to be strengthened in the beliefs that we have and to see how they really shape all of our life, because they are not just meant to sit in our head, but to affect our hearts and then to come out into the way that we relate to one another and how we live. And so we are exploring these things together. And, and today, we're really just asking this question, what did Jesus do? And if you're, if you're new, if, if this is your first time uh, just kind of entering into this series, we've been looking at all sorts of things, and I would encourage you to go back and look at them. Last week, we looked at who is Jesus, but today we look at what did Jesus do? And in a word, the way that we could sum that up is salvation. What Jesus did is that he came to save now, you've probably heard that phrase, you've probably heard that word, whether you're a Christian or not. People say, you maybe have seen signs, or people will say, Jesus saves. Maybe you've seen a bumper sticker that says that. People talk about, maybe you've heard words of, Jesus is my personal Savior. So you've, you've heard the language of salvation. But what does that mean? What does it mean, salvation? And in some ways, that really is what we're all looking for. In some ways, we're all looking for salvation. Maybe generally speaking, we might think if I have this much money or if I can get this job, then I'll be saved. Things will be better. Things will be different. Sometimes it might be with a particular person that if I can get this relationship, if I can get this, if I can build a family, if I can get married, if I can get a boyfriend or a girlfriend, or if I can get friends, then, then I'll be saved. Things will be better. Sometimes there's even songs and people use that language like, oh, you saved me. So in some ways, that's something we're all looking for. Maybe just even in your life right now, not broadly speaking, but particular stressors or conflicts or particular struggles. You want salvation. You want something to be solved. You want something to be better and different. You want help. In some ways, that is what we are all looking for at various points in our life, salvation. And the Bible says that we need salvation in the deepest sense, that we need salvation, that we can have salvation, that Jesus brings salvation, and not just in a one-time event, though that's true, but salvation is a bringing from to a bringing to. It's a whole reality that Jesus brings us into that we can experience, that we can access, that we can use in our lives. It's not just something that Jesus did thousands of years ago, I was saved, but it is an experience for all of the different things that we face, all of the struggles, all of the sufferings, all of the temptations. Jesus came to bring salvation. And so today, I'm just going to explore that. Why did he do that? What does that mean? How do we access that in our lives. So to begin with, let's just answer this question. Why did Jesus come? 
Why did he come? Why did Jesus come to this earth? And the most basic answer that could be given from one of the most famous Bible verses that there is, John 3.16 and 17, says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. The reason that Jesus came is because God loves us. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. In some ways, that's the most basic answer that we could give. Why did Jesus come? Because he loves us, because God loves us. And you know that oftentimes, the amount of love that you have for someone is going to be equivalent to the gift that you would give to them. So maybe you have uh, a coworker and you want to say Merry Christmas, and you give them a $5 Starbucks card. You love them a little bit, a latte's worth, right? But probably if it was your one-year anniversary or as a wedding present, if you gave a $5 Starbucks card, you would say, that seems a little lacking. I thought you loved me a little bit more. Sometimes parents, they love their children. They give them a lot of Christmas presents. Usually not. $5 Starbucks card. Usually, the love that we have for someone is expressed in an equivalence of the gift that we give. So when the Bible says that God so loved the world, or God loved the world, and he gave his only son, that helps us really never have to question, does God love me? What would God give to me? God would give his son. Why did Jesus come to this world? Because God loved us. But not only that, the Bible also says, and we have to hold these two things together, that one of the reasons that Jesus came to this world is because of God's justice or because of God's righteousness. It says in Romans 3, 3 and 5, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. This is to say that we are all sinners, and there's always been sin, and yet God passed over former sins. Not that he ignored them, but he didn't deal with them fully, but he had to deal with them fully. There had to be a decisive act of God's righteousness and his judgment upon sin. He couldn't just ignore sin. That would be wrong. Sometimes, uh, today, in our judicial system, there may be someone that gets off from something that people feel like they should have been found guilty, and they get off. And there's protests, or people are angry, saying, how could this person get off from justice? We don't like that. We, don't, we know that that's not okay for someone to escape justice. The Bible says that Jesus had to come because of God's justice, his righteousness against sin. He cannot just let it go. He is a just God. So both of those things are true. When you say, why did Jesus come? Well, one of the reasons is because he loved us so much. 
And one of the reasons is because of God's justice and his righteousness, that God had to deal with sin. He would be unjust if not. Now, both of these things together is why the Bible often talks about when Jesus comes, and Jesus uses this language about himself, he says that it was necessary that he came. This is after his resurrection. He says, how foolish you are and how short, slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah himself to suffer these things and enter into his glory? That language of necessary is used often. Jesus doesn't say, yes, you know, it was a good idea that I came or I didn't have anything else going on for 30, you know, three, 34 years or so, so I came. He says, no, it was necessary. I had to come because the love of God was so much it was necessary. Because the righteousness and justice of God was so much that it was necessary. Because of our need, it was necessary. So why did Jesus come? It's an important question to think about, to ask. And it's not because of our great worth that he just looked at us and said, man, I just have to do this because they're so amazing. It is because of his great love and because of his great justice and our great need. And those things come together and say, Jesus came. And what did he do when he came? That is what he, that is why he came, but what did he come to do? What did Jesus come to do? He came to this earth as God, as man, because of his love, because of his justice. But what did he come to do? What is it that he actually accomplished? And how did that happen? There's several angles of this that we are going to look at. The first is that he came to live obediently. Now, listen, most religions will teach, most religions will teach that salvation or access to God, or acceptance, or even nirvana, or but most religions will teach that salvation, however you want to define that, in the major world religions, heaven, and those kinds of things, most will teach that in order to experience that, you must live obediently. You must do good. You must do the right things. That is true. And if you are a Christian, maybe you have been taught that that's not true. It is true. In order to experience life with God, in order to get to heaven, in order to be saved, you must live obediently. This is why many people feel a lot of guilt because they know they're not. It's why many people live burdened because they are constantly, whether consciously living religiously or not, they know I can never quite get there. I can never quite do enough. This is why in kind of folk, pop, Christian religion that's maybe more found in the South, but is kind of around in country music a lot, talks about like, man, just live good, get to heaven, do the right things. This is why some people just reject religion altogether because it feels like, man, if I have to live obediently, this is too much. Can't do it. And the Bible teaches the same thing, that 
If you want God, if you want salvation, you must live obediently. You are saved by works. But Christianity says only Jesus lived obediently, perfectly. That only Jesus was able to do all the works that God requires. But it's important to actually understand, because sometimes Christians will say, we're not saved by works. Obedience, God doesn't care about obedience. It's just grace. That isn't true. God demands perfect obedience. And it is your works. It is works that save or condemn. But we cannot do it. And until you actually feel the weight of that, you don't appreciate the gift where Jesus is actually the only human that ever lived perfectly obedient, that ever accomplished all of the works that we are called to do, that ever totally fulfilled the law of God. And he comes living obedient in perfection and then gifts that obedience to us which is what the Bible says. We've looked at this verse a couple different times, but it says, for just as through one man's disobedience, Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. It is through his obedience that we are made righteous. Or, as Paul says, because of him, Jesus, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung, this is actually a much stronger word, just so you know, that they've found in graffiti and stuff on the walls. Uh, the Greek word is skubala. Some people have made t-shirts that say skubala happens, which is clever, because that really is what it means. But we'll stick with dung, so that I don't have to have a giant, long Greek coffee conversation with anyone. So, so that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, living obediently, living, doing all the works, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. So Paul is saying, I need righteousness in order to be accepted by God. I need righteousness and works to be accepted by God. I need perfect obedience, but I have it not from me, but from Christ. I have his righteousness. I have his obedience. I have his record. Now, there, there really isn't a great analogy for that because we don't really have examples of that from a human perspective. The best analogies fail because we mainly haven't really experienced it. But it would be like if you were in school and somehow someone with the perfect grades, perfect SAT scores, perfect report card could trade it with you. And now you get access to the best college or to uh, the, the prizes that the school gives based on your grades or that your parents give based on your grade. You get access to that, not because of your record, but because of the one that was given to you. But it is still the record and the earning of that that gives you those. It's just you're trading it, not a righteousness of your own, but one through faith in Christ. If someone else somehow could give you their resume... And then you could get the job that you wanted. You could get access to those. And you didn't actually accomplish those things. Someone else did it for you. But it's because they earned it that you get the favor. That you get the blessing. Jesus lived perfectly obedient. 
perfectly righteous life that we are all called to live, but don't. And he gives that, gifts it to us. It's called, theologians will call this, gift righteousness, where we are given his righteousness as a gift, which means all that comes along with that, God's favor, God's blessing, God's approval. See, for many of us, we often feel this desire, this hunger, this need for validation, for acceptance, for recognition, for respect, for am I, am I good enough? Am I doing good enough? And you will never be good enough. But when we begin to base our righteousness, our acceptance on the gift given to us in Jesus, we can actually know, oh, God approves of me. God delights in me. Not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done. He lived obediently and gives you, therefore, a deep acceptance, not based on your record, but Jesus's. That means all of the favor and delight and acceptance and approval that the Father gives to Jesus, you get as a gift. Why did Jesus come? To live obediently. But also to die sacrificially. Spend the most time on this. I'm going to give you good chunk of Old Testament background, because for many of you, especially if you're a Christian, you've heard this, and yet we can know or hear Jesus died for my sins, and yet lose so much of, what does that really mean? Now listen, our concept of God, often, and I don't mean necessarily here in the church, but our concept of God culturally, in America especially, is that if there is a God, which most people believe in God, if there is a God, God exists to make me happy. And I say culturally, although these ideas infiltrate into the church and, and, and form us and shape us, whether we recognize that or not. By the way, I think this is a good analogy. I heard, uh, I don't have much time to go off my notes, but I'll take a little bit of time. It's all right. But I, 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 heard, uh, I heard this, and I think it's a great analogy that so many of us think we're not formed by the views around us. Like, oh yeah, I'm, I am unique. I decide my own thing. And then, and I know this doesn't apply to many of you, but then when it comes time to uh, name your baby and you think you came up with this super unique name, all you gotta do is check the top baby names and go, oh, I'm on the top 10, maybe in the top five. Like, well, how is that true? How is it that everybody thinks they've got such a unique baby name and yet they're all on the top 10? Well, it's because we're more influenced by the things around us than we realize. No offense to any Emmas out there, but I think it was friends that Ross and Rachel named their baby Emma, and then a bunch of Emmas were born. Some of you are like, what is he talking about? Well, you're either too young or too old, okay? Got to be just right. <clears throat> so, why did Jesus come to, what was I talking about? See, okay. Our concept of God is to make us happy. If he's there, it's to just kind of satisfy our desires, make us feel good. He's kind of a good therapist in the sky. He helps us with our problems, maybe. He, he's supposed to make life go well if we do well. 
So it can be really hard for us to understand this concept, and yet it really is so foundational to everything else. It can be really hard for us to understand the Old Testament, and then when the New Testament connects back to it, talking about Jesus being a sacrifice, it can be really hard for us to get this because our concept of God that we've been formed by, even if we don't think we have, our concept of God is so different from the Bible's concept of God. So the Bible views that we are in a covenant relationship with God. He made us so we belong to him. But we sin. We reject God. We ignore God. And sin is death. Sin is death, and it brings death. So sin, the wages of sin, is death. That's what God said at the, in the beginning, that sin would bring death, and it does. It brings physical death, but it also disintegrates everything around it. It brings relational death. It brings death into creation. It brings, it brings death. We're in a covenant relationship with God. Sin brings and is death. And so the Old Testament is filled with all this language about sacrifices needed because of our sin. Punishment needed for our sin. Blood needing to be shed for our sin. Because sin is death. And it, the penalty, the punishment, the consequences, the effects of sin are death. So it's associated with blood. And it's associated with a sacrifice being needed to cover the penalty for the sin. And so this shows up in the very beginning. Adam and Eve turn against God. They sin. And then it says that God clothes them with animal skins. Where'd those animals come from? God didn't just have like a hunting cabin with some animal. Here you go. Animals died to cover them. Sacrifice for their sin. And then fast forwarding, you get to uh, the people of Israel that are, and you probably know this story, the people of Israel that are in slavery in Egypt. And God says to sacrifice a lamb, a Passover lamb, and to put the blood on the doorpost. And when God's judgment comes, God will pass over any house that has been covered by the blood of the lamb. That lamb, as a substitute for their sin, God's wrath will pass over. And all of these are kind of just the beginning. These are just the, the, uh, the opening seeds of what would develop into a whole sacrificial system that God announces and gives to them. Because sin is death. And so it, they... Eventually, every single day, the Bible commanded that two sacrifices were to be made. This is what you are to offer regularly on the altar every day. Two-year-old lambs. They're supposed to sacrifice every single day because we sin every single day. And so the temple system set up, beginning in the tabernacle, set up this sacrificial system. Which is why in the book of Hebrews it says this, according to law, almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. You read through the Old Testament, particularly, particularly the first five books of the Bible, but really all the Old Testament, and you just see blood everywhere. You're like, what blood here, blood there, blood for this? And it's like a Quentin Tarantino movie. You're just like, what is going on? There's just blood everywhere. Hebrews agrees. says, yeah, almost everything. It's, you want to purify that? You want to make that right? Blood, blood, blood. Sacrifices everywhere because without shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. And this is what God says in Leviticus, the life of a creature is in the blood. 
And I have appointed it to you to make atonement on the altar for your lives, since it's the lifeblood that makes atonement. Atonement is this reconciliation, this forgiveness, coming back together. So all over the Old Testament, because of what sin is, the concept is there must be blood. There must be sacrifice to make those things right. There has to be, because the life is in the blood, there must be a payment for sin. There must be a substitution, which is why all this sacrifice stuff exists. There must be a substitution. We should die for our sin, but instead some other creature dies for our sin. Now this helps us begin to understand all the different language about Jesus. This helps us understand. But let's, let me help you get this a little bit more. God saves his people out of Israel. There, so excuse me, out of Egypt. God saves his people out of Egypt. They've been slaves for years and years and years and years, hundreds of years. God saves them. And then he makes a covenant with them. He's like, I will be your people. You will be my God. Get the Ten Commandments. God gives them his law. Says, follow this. Follow my law. Be in relationship with me. Makes a covenant with them of who they are to be as his people. Give you one of the scenes here. It says, Moses came and told the people all the commands of the Lord. Okay, some of those you know, Ten Commandments. And all the ordinances. Then all the people responded with a single voice. We will do everything that the Lord has commanded. If you've read through the Bible, you know, yeah, that's not going to happen. That's what they say. We will do everything that the Lord has commanded. Then he sent out young Israelite men. They offered burnt offerings and sacrificed bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half the blood and set it in basins. The other half of the blood he splattered on the altar. He then took the covenant scroll and read it aloud to the people. They responded, we will do and obey all the Lord has commanded, which is what they were required to do. It wasn't just like this false humility. That is what God required of them to do, is to obey what he commands. Moses took the blood, splattered it on the people. We'll do that in a minute. And said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you concerning all these words. So the blood goes with the covenant. Blood, because the animals have been sacrificed to show the payment of sin, to show what is necessary if you do sin. This is the blood of the covenant. Then later in Deuteronomy, this tells you about what happens if they obey God. And what happens if they don't obey God? And I can't give you, I'm just giving you sort of the highlights of this, okay? But it says, now, if you faithfully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all his commands I'm giving you today, the Lord your God will put you far above the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come and overtake you because you obey the Lord your God. Then he lists out all these blessings. It says, if you obey God, you will be blessed. I love the way he says it. They will overtake you. That's a great way, man. Oh, what happened? Oh, blessings overtook me. That's great. That's great language, right? And then, if you do not obey the Lord your God by carefully following all his commands and statutes I'm giving you today, all these curses will come and overtake you. So God makes a covenant with his people, instituted, confirmed, in blood. And then he tells them, if you obey, you will be blessed. And there's all sorts of physical, tangible blessings that come. But it, it is also the presence of God, the enjoyment of life with God that is given to them. 
And if they don't obey, they will be cursed. And there's all sorts of physical curses that come along with that. But ultimately, it's they are cut off. They are, they are separate from God. This is the conditions of the covenant and the consequences of the covenant. But because God knew that they would sin, there's all these sacrifices that are set up every single day. Sacrifice for sins. And an annual larger sacrifice called the Day of Atonement. You may have heard that. We, the, the Jewish people still celebrate this a couple weeks ago. Yom Kippur. So they have an annual instituted national holiday, the Day of Atonement. And on this day, here's what happens. Aaron, that is the priest, will present the bull for his sin offering. So he's the priest, but he's still sinful. He has to make sacrifice first for his sins. Make atonement for himself, his household. Next, he will take the two goats and place them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. After Aaron casts lots for the two goats, one for the Lord and the other for an uninhabitable place, he is to present the goats chosen by lot for the Lord and sacrifice it as a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot for an uninhabitable place is to be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement with it by sending it into the wilderness for an uninhabitable place. So the day of atonement, the priest makes sacrifices for himself because he's still sinful, even though he has to present before God. Then you grab two goats and you cast lots, sort of like you roll dice. Which goat is going to be sacrificed and which goat is going to be sent away? I imagine the goats anxiously waiting. They're like, oh, sorry, Bill. It's you, you know? And one of them is sacrificed for the sins of the people. Sacrifice is a sin offering. The other one is sent away. This is where we get the concept, by the way, of a scapegoat, if you've ever heard of that. So the goat is released, and the priest puts the sins upon the goat, and it is released into the wilderness, symbolizing God taking our sins and sending them away, that they're gone. Your sins have to be paid for, but also, God represented, your sins are far away. They don't exist anymore. They're gone. You've been cleansed. Expiation is the theological term for that. But it's such a beautiful image. God is saying, your sins are gone. I don't remember them anymore. They're totally gone. They're not a part of us and our community anymore. <clears throat> then, when he slaughters the male goat for the people's sin offering, brings it, its blood inside the curtain, he will do the same with its blood as he did with the bull's blood. He's to sprinkle it against the mercy seat and in front of it. He will make atonement for the most holy place in this way for all their sins because of the Israelites' impurities and rebellious acts. The mercy seat, if you've uh, seen Indiana Jones or other movies, this is the Ark of the Covenant. The mercy seat is this top area. Okay? And the mercy seat, the reason the blood is sprinkled upon there is for two things. One is to say this is the consequences if we don't keep the covenant. The Ten Commandments are in here along with some other things. If we do not obey God's commands, this is our penalty. So blood sprinkled on there. Also symbolizing the only way that we can have access to meet with God. God said that he would meet with his people in this place, the mercy seat, is through blood. Purifying, opening the way for us to be able to meet with God. Because we are impure because of our sin. So that's, I know a lot of this is, maybe you've never dug into all this stuff. This is what the Bible talks about with all the sacrifice and all the blood and all the atonement and all, the, all, all this language that we have heard so much about. But here is the problem. All of this stuff was insufficient. It wasn't enough. People continued to sin. I think, when I study all this stuff and look at it, I feel like I'm wrong. 
But I feel like, man, if we did this, wouldn't we just stop sinning? If every day two lambs had to be sacrificed, if every day we saw this visceral experience of animals just being slaughtered, wouldn't you just be like, oh, I need to stop and just be done? Like you think you'll stop cussing with a cuss jar and put a dollar in, you know? Like, I, I mean, I, sometimes we think like, oh, the, the more sort of heavier, intense the thing is, then we'll stop. And the answer is no. It didn't. It didn't work. It was insufficient. The book of Hebrews says, the law has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the reality itself of those things. It can never perfect the worshipers, all of these things that happened. It could never perfect them, could never make them totally righteous by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Otherwise, if it worked, otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered since the worshipers purified once and for all would no longer have any consciousness of sins? If it worked, they they wouldn't have had to keep doing it over and over again. But in the sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins year after year. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins fully and ultimately. So the system exists, and yet built into it is this understanding that it, it, it's insufficient. Built into it is this understanding that it fails, which is why God promised he would give a better covenant. Prophet Jeremiah says, look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sins. So they have this promise that a new, a better covenant will come one day. Now, this is all leads us to Christianity. Jesus comes. They're waiting. They're waiting for this better covenant. They're waiting for something that can fulfill, that can pay for, pay for their failure, that can actually give them the blessings and take away the curses. Jesus comes. And what the Bible says of him is this. But Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come in the greater and more perfect tabernacle. That's where all the sacrifices were made. Not made with hands. That is not of this creation. He entered the most holy place once for all time, not, sin, not sacrifices that had to be done over and over again, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of animals couldn't, couldn't do it. This is part of why last week was important. It had to be the perfect human and perfect God, his own blood. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow sprinkling those who are defiled sanctify in some way for the purification of the flesh, how much more? Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciousnesses from dead works so that we can serve the living God? So if, if, if the blood and the goats and all that could, could a little bit bring purification, how much more God himself? How much more the perfect man that actually fulfilled the covenant in all the right ways? Which is why then Jesus, oh, excuse me, says, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called might receive the promise of the internal inheritance. Because a death has taken place for redemption from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Which is why Jesus says this. And he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, 
this cup is the new covenant in my blood, in my blood, which is poured out for you. So you've got this covenant. Yes, amen. You've got this covenant that's set up that the people never can fulfill. And the priest that offers it is sinful himself. And animals can't totally uh, atone for a human sin. God is promising there is going to be a new covenant that comes. And that's what Jesus says when he comes. This is the new covenant that's made in my blood, a perfect blood for you. This is what Jesus says, and this is what Jesus did on the cross. His blood, remember, the blood was needed for our failure to keep the covenant. Jesus says, this blood will satisfy more than the blood of goats and bulls. Your failure to keep the covenant, this blood will pay for. And Jesus took all of the consequences of failing God's covenant on himself. That's what the Bible says. When it says he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. Anybody can have this. He is the atoning sacrifice. That's why we don't sacrifice animals anymore. Because we already have one that has paid the perfect and once and only needed sacrifice. He took it, our sin, upon himself. And in doing so, took all of the curses upon himself that come if we don't obey God. That's what it says here when it says about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma, sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Now, Jesus didn't think that God had left him, but in that moment, he is experiencing the weight of the curse of sin, which is the being cut off from God, which was the curse that is given if the covenant is not fulfilled, which is why it will say later, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So all the curses of not fulfilling the covenant, Jesus takes on himself. All the consequences of not failing it, he pays with his blood. He suffered all of it. This is what he came to do, is to die a sacrificial death. He kept the covenant perfectly. He paid for our failure to keep the covenant. And then what happens if you keep the covenant perfectly? Blessing, which is why it's filled with language like this. If you were here at the beginning of the year, we went through Ephesians. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in the heavens in Christ. That is not just saying, yeah, God's going to do nice things for you. It's saying all the blessings that come with keeping the covenant perfect, you have, not because of you, but because of being in Christ, because of Jesus, taking all the punishment and giving us all the blessing. Now, here's what this means. I know that was a lot, okay? There's your theology lesson for the day. Do you ever feel guilt, shame for the things that you've done? Do you ever feel like there's secrets from what you've done that you could never reveal? Do you ever feel like your sin is too much? And maybe you even use language like, I could never forgive myself. The Bible says that in Jesus, you have received total forgiveness, total cleansing, total atonement. It's been paid for. And you never have to wonder where you stand with God. 
because it isn't based on your ability to obey or disobey. It's based on what he did, and he gives it to you. He says, you should die because of your sin, and I died instead of you. You should die for your failure of the covenant, and I die instead. This is my blood for the covenant, and he gives it to you. You can receive his forgiveness, and you can rest in his forgiveness. If you believe that, if you know that, you rest because you know I'm, I'm cleansed. I know that it's been paid for. So now I have the blessings of God, not the curses of God. Now I have access to God, which is what the blood gave into the mercy seat. I've got, access. I've got a covenant with him that's been fulfilled by Jesus. But it's not based on you. This is what faith is. Faith is receiving his salvation and it's resting in his salvation. That's where we, we use this every day. It's not just a one-time thing that we go, okay, yeah, I believe that, but you, you receive it. But if you really have received this, you can rest in it. You don't have to forgive yourself. You've been forgiven by him. You don't have to wonder where you are with God. He's already dealt with it and paid for it. You don't have to wonder what happens if you die tonight and, well, did I do enough? Or, Jesus already paid and dealt with all of it in the bloodiest way possible. He was cut off from God, so you didn't have to be. He took the curse, so you don't have to. You can live in blessing. You can be close to God. You have access to God. You have peace with God. You have freedom. And the more that we know that, the more that we also then want to reflect that to other people and give them grace and forgive them because of how much we've been forgiven. Okay, but we're not done. We've got a couple more. He also came to raise, that's the, the, spent the longest time on that one because it was very complex, but he also came to raise or resurrect victoriously. Now, I can't go through all the proofs of the resurrection, and he, but I would encourage you if, you, if you have questions about that, to, uh, we have resources, encourage you to study that if you're, if you're not sure where you stand with that. But when Jesus rose from the dead, what happens is that he, it's not just, oh, he's alive. Wow, magic trick. What happens is he creates a new kingdom reality. The Bible says that God has raised this Jesus, that we are all witnesses of this. This is the apostles, Peter, preaching. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, Lord and Messiah. So it's saying be, Jesus is alive. And in that resurrection, a new kingdom, Lord, Messiah, a new kingdom is established. That because Jesus is alive, there is a new kingdom. And we, we experience that mainly in the church. In the church is where mainly we come together and say we are living as people with a new law and a new king and a new government. And we submit to him. And we live as citizens of his kingdom. What would it look like if Jesus was king? Well, that's what we want to, to live like. What would family look like and marriage look like and community look like and friendship look like with Jesus as our king? You experience that and get to enjoy that mainly in the church. That's part of why it matters so much, especially as across the world, you've got outposts of the true kingdom in all these other kingdoms. So 
his resurrection creates a new kingdom, but it also creates a new humanity, meaning a new kind of human. The Bible says that God, who's rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You're saved by grace. Saying that because of sin, humans are dead. We're zombies walking around. But in Christ, the Bible calls this regeneration, or you are made alive. It means if you're a Christian, you aren't a normal human anymore. You're a new kind of human with a resurrection life in a resurrection power that exists. I'm just I'm not going to read this whole thing, but I just want uh, Paul goes on and he says that because of the resurrection, now the immeasurable greatness of his power comes to us that believe. The same power that he exercised in Christ by raising him from the dead. Which means if you're a Christian, you have this new power inside of you from Jesus. The power that raised Jesus from the dead, you have that power inside of you. Here's what that means. It means we should never look at our sin and go, this will just always win. Sometimes Christians, we treat our sin very casually. It's like, ah, nobody's perfect and everybody's a sinner. And we're living as if we're an old kind of human. But the Bible says you have resurrection power flowing through you. That means you have the ability to actually put sin to death. And you have the ability to have power in the things that God calls you to do. To serve other people. To love people. To, you've got resurrection power inside of you. You're, you're not an old human. You're a new human. A different kind of human. So the resurrection creates a new kingdom and it creates new people. And I'll give you one last one. that, Especially for us. us and I put myself there, but... All the older folks may appreciate. As it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. Jesus rose from the dead as the first fruits. If you have garden, you get one, uh, you know, one little bud that you see, and you're like, oh, okay, this is good. It's going to be a good crop. That's Jesus. Jesus is the first fruits. He, he showed this is what's going to happen, a new body after death, which is really encouraging because as you get older, your body starts to decay. It just starts to break down. Your back hurts and your, your legs hurt and can't stand very long. I'm going to start preaching sitting down. I mean, it just, it just starts to be like, ah, uh, even standing up is hard. You know, you know you're old when you're like, what was hard about your day? Ah, uh, standing. Standing is so hard. Uh, well, maybe I should try sitting. Oh, uh, sitting is so hard. Everything is hard. Your body just starts to crumble. And some of you have suffered with really, you know, physical pain, chronic pain, chronic sickness. It's such a beautiful thing to know that one day, resurrected body. One day soon, resurrected body. That's what it means when it says that he raised victoriously. And then final one here is he came to ascend authoritatively. Now, this is probably, of the four, the one that gets the neglected the most in Christian teaching. But when you think about Jesus, he, he came and he lived. He lived the perfect life. And then he died, a sacrificial death that we should die. Then he raised, and his new life brings us new life and a new kingdom and a new body one day. But then he also ascended. He went up. 
They watched him go up. And it wasn't just, again, like a magic trick of like, there goes Jesus. He ascended, which is a physical thing that happened, but it also, spiritually speaking, is saying he is now king of this world. This is why when it talks about the ascension, it will say things like he has been exalted to the right hand of God, received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. He's poured out what you both see and hear. But oftentimes when it talks about his ascension, it talks about his exaltation, that he's in this position of glory. He's not just, sometimes when people think about Jesus, it's just the Jesus in a robe, hippie preacher, you know, traveling vagabond guy. Like, oh, yeah, Jesus. I, one time I overheard these people talking like, oh, man, the Old Testament God. Uh, I like Jesus. He got woke and went to college. I overheard people saying, like, yeah, that's not really. But Jesus is exalted at the right hand of God. He is the glorious king. And when it talks about the ascension, it sometimes will talk about that he, again, I'm not going to read all this, but he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So sometimes it talks about him going up, meaning he's exalted, he's glorious, that's who he is, but also talks about him sitting down. When you think about that language of sitting down, it has a couple different connotations to it. To sit down can mean, I'm done. Which is beautiful, right? Jesus isn't like, okay, I still have to make some atonement for this person, or I still have to do some work here, or I still have to, he's done. He sits down, it's completed. That's why on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. And when he ascends, he's not like having to figure everything. He he sits down. But to sit down also represents authority. You think about certain contexts, maybe, you know, I've never live witnessed this, but certain movies and stuff, you see uh, the Oval Office and everybody stands up. The president comes in, they sit down or in the cabinet meeting room when there's a nuclear attack that's about to happen and they have to get someone to stop it. This president sits down. When you sit down, it's authority. Jesus is ruling, sitting down as the king. He is actively ruling. This is why, as Christians, we can say, man, the world has a lot of kings. The world has a lot of leaders. It has a lot of governments. The world has a lot of that. And some of it, it really kind of tries to posture and act like, hey, we're really the show. We're really in charge. But Jesus is the one that's actually sitting on the throne. He ascended authoritatively and sits on the throne, which means this. Do you feel like, I know sometimes I do, the world's out of control. And you feel like Denver's out of control. Feel like Arvada's out of control. Feel like your life is out of control. And feel like you don't know what's going to happen and you don't know what's going to come next and you don't know how this is going to get solved and you don't know how this is going to work out and, and we can feel like things are just chaos. But if you use this truth in your heart to say, there's actually a king sitting on the throne. What king? The king that has lived obediently for me and died sacrificially for me and raised victoriously for me, that's the king that actually rules this world. It helps us to have a peace. It helps us to have a trust. It helps us to say, I don't, I don't get everything, but there is one sitting on the throne. He gets everything, and he's absolutely for me. 
He absolutely loves me. He's proved it in a million different ways. So, what did Jesus come to do? He came to save us. He came to save us. We're all looking for salvation in some way, in some different sources. Searching, looking, but Jesus brings salvation. Because he loved us, because of his righteousness, he brings us salvation that we can use, not just as a one-time thing, but all of these truths. When you're struggling with your ability to do good and know it's not enough, you can know God has given me favor and delight because of Jesus' obedience. When you struggle with shame and guilt and don't know if you should confess, you can remember Jesus has forgiven me in his sacrificial death. When you wonder how God feels about you, you've got peace with God through Jesus. When you wonder if if you have the power to overcome sin or to do the things that God calls you to do, you can know, man, I've got resurrection power flowing through me. And when you struggle with the chaos of this world or your life, you can have a confidence knowing a king is on the throne that loves you and is for you. All of these are, are real truths that bring the salvation that we need in our life. Are you living in that? Have you received that, first of all? And are you resting in that? Those are the questions. And when we come to take communion, which we'll do in just a moment here, if if you're a Christian, we have little cups in the back, and communion is a time that Christians do in remembrance of Jesus, what, what we saw in that particular passage, that we remember the blood that he poured out for the new covenant. We remember his body broken for us. We remember the forgiveness of our sins, which gives us access to God and covenant blessing. That's what we remember when we take communion. We remember that Jesus has paid for our sins. And we remember that because of him, we now have the power to to walk in obedience. Which means this, when you take communion, if there's sin in your life, you should confess it to God and say, God, forgive me. How could I take this and be so thankful for your forgiveness when I'm still committed and living in sin? We, we confess our sin and we thank him that he forgives us and we live in thankful obedience and what he's done for us. So as you take communion, it can be a time to confess. It can be a time to just thank God and be assured of what he's done for you and to ask him to help you reflect that to those around you and rest in his salvation. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you've given us a salvation that is so much better than the blood of bulls and goats and lambs. You've given us your son. You loved us and gave us your son. You are just and gave us your son. Thank you. Let us receive that and let us rest in that. I pray that you would use these few songs and this time to just deepen these truths into our heart. In your name, Jesus. Amen.